Welcome to this podcast on working with technology projects. This podcast is split into two segments. In the first segment, we have Julia Keeler, Lena Karkov, and Alvaro Pariente talking about their respective pro- technology projects experiences. In the second segment, we have Rishi Poptani talking about his ex- technology project experience. You are now listening to the first segment of this podcast. Our topic today is working with technology projects. We start the session with a quick introduction, followed by each of our panelists sharing their project experiences related to the topic of the day. Um, our panels today are Julia, uh, Lina, Alvaro, and myself, uh, Vijay, as your host. So to our viewers, if you haven't already, please sign up as a member of the BA video series LinkedIn group um, to watch our past uh, LinkedIn live recordings and the present ones on various business analysis topics. So on that note, um, I would like to now ask each of our speakers to introduce themselves, starting with uh, Julia. Good morning. I'm Julia Kayla. I have now worked as a BA for over five years um, with all this time spent within um, technology consulting space. So as you can imagine, I have worked on a large number of variety of projects for different clients. The type of work that I have been involved in ranges from your typical consulting gigs, if you like, um, where myself as part of the team would work with the client to understand and define the problem. Um, and um, then in kind of in order to propose the most appropriate solution to that problem, defining the tech stack, delivery model, and what's really important in the benefits case. Uh, as well as doing those consultancy type of work, I've worked on um, different technology delivery and implementation projects, um, including delivering digital transformation across various government departments. Um, through the use of service design methods, modern architecture. Um, I have also been involved in implementation of automation tools uh, for the back office setting and process improvements um, also through technology. Um, And all this relying heavily on agile delivery methods. Um, Currently, I'm working within the product development space and we are developing a grant management tool um, that's a bit of an innovation within the public sector uh, space. Um, So the purpose of that is to make the process of dispersing public money more efficient as well as user-friendly. Thank you, Julia. And Lena, if you'd like to unmute yourself and introduce. Yes, hello and good morning. Uh, My name is uh, Lene Kakao. I'm uh, from uh, Denmark, based in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, I have uh, 13 years of experience as a business analyst. Uh, I've been working in the finance sector, in the public sector, and now in the shipping industry. And uh, I've been in, I've been always only uh, in in internal uh, development organizations um, within um, large, complex, old organizations. Uh, So, lots of work to do for business analysts there to uh, to work with the various uh, stakeholders make sure everyone is aligned and that um, 
we are on the same page in relation to objectives of the various uh, change initiatives. Um, and um, yeah, I've been working with uh, solutions in the you know, like self-service solutions and uh, also a lot about how self-service solutions interact with, uh, with, the, um, with the systems or the applications that the uh, internal users of the company that advise uh, customers or citizens, how those processes uh, interact. And, um, and uh, now I'm currently also involved in, uh, in some IoT initiatives where a lot of the focus is on um, managing those devices, making sure we can get uh, high-quality data. Thank you, Lene. And Alvaro, if you'd like to uh, introduce yourself, please, and unmute yourself. Thanks, sir. Good morning, everybody. Well, my name is uh, Alvaro Poriente. I'm a Spanish guy, but now living in the UK, London-based. Um, I've been working in the IT sector for 12, 13 years. So I got a technical background, so computer science. I live in Sweden uh, for for a year as well. And well, you know, I studied as a programmer. I think I went through the whole professional career, you know, analyst, programmer, business analyst, and all these kind of things. And then I started to be more close to, to business. Um, so that really helped me, you know, to be close to some of the industry aspects. And for the last six, seven years, I've been working on the financial services sector. So I've been doing things on retail banking, FX, you know, corporate investment, savings and loans, insurance. That's been predominantly my, my main focus. Um, because of my, my language, uh, my original language, I've been working in Spain a lot, but I have also got the opportunity to travel and work in Latin America. So countries like Chile, Colombia, Mexico and Peru. And now I'm more focused into the European one. So you know, UK, Ireland, and, and Benelux. Um, yeah, that's a little bit of my, of my background. In terms of technology, it's, it's more related to efficiency processes around sales, servicing, and marketing. Thank you, Alvaro. Yeah, the, the topic of the day is uh, working with technology projects. Um, and I think uh, from, from some of the uh, comments that I got from the viewers in previous recordings, one of the key things we we hope to address in this session is also um, along with the project experiences that our speakers have, what are the key challenges, what are the uh, frustrations and the, the challenges that you have to face when dealing with those projects, some of the complications that we are all aware of in tech, in tech projects um, and how you would come around some learnings and you know a, a bit around that as well. Um, Cause that can really help uh, our viewers in dealing with their own project dilemmas. Um, great. Uh, on that note, um, let's start off with uh, Julia, if you'd want to kickstart with your project stories. So I do have a couple. Um, I think in my experience, um, what's most important to remember about technology implementation um, and business analysis within the IT space or industry um, is the fact that technology does not really create any miracles. Um, if technology is not fit for purpose in order to meet client goals, um, then it's just not going to work. And having worked within the consulting industry, um, we do often come across less experienced clients who maybe fell behind with uh, 
technology innovation um, within um, their own industry or within their own offices and they're looking for a kind of you know a golden solution to the problem and they think just procuring some sort of technology will solve all the business uh, problems which is absolutely not the case um, so this is something that I've learned um, over the years um, is the fact that you know technology is just a means to an end really um, it doesn't solve the full problem um, it, it has to be absolutely aligned with the problem that we're trying to solve um, with the type of industry, with the type of client, um, and also the type of customers they're trying to serve with that technology. Okay, so could you maybe uh, talk about some of the, the core projects uh, that you had to deal with, uh, like example projects where you um, you face some of the challenges. Maybe talk us through the methodology uh, as, a, as a business analyst, the methodological approach to approaching the, the tech projects and uh, no, go go through the the whole life cycle on on how you got involved from start to finish to give us the full fledged. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the first step is always to sit down with the client, and I will refer, I will use the word client a lot because I work with uh, clients in in my job. Um, so the very kind of first step is sitting there with the client and understanding, absolutely fully understanding what they are trying to achieve. Because um, it's really simple to kind of list the problems that you are facing. But I suppose clients often think about those problems and they look to us for for solutions to those, but we really, as a BA, I really need to understand not just the problem, but what the end goal is or what the interim goal is. Um, so essentially it's from those conversations, from um, a lot of workshops, um, I do tend to do um, a lot of interactive workshops with the clients in order to really flesh out what they're after, what they're trying to achieve, what the goal is. Um, maybe they're just trying to solve a tiny little problem with um, the project that they're proposing but actually we need to think further forward as well um, so yes focus on what they're actually asking for but also thinking about the bigger picture uh, when we once the sort of the problem has been defined the goals have been defined then it's really about brainstorming and thinking about what technical solutions we may propose um, as well as um, how well do they fit in with the business and the problem and the goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, so that is a bit of a gap analysis um, that we would perform benefits cases. Um, we are really big on value chain mapping as well um, just to make sure um, that we really are meeting, well, that we will be able to meet tangible goals. Um, with measurable results as well. Um, so this is the kind of upfront phase of any projects that we do currently. In terms of the actual delivery, um, the key is to be realistic as to what can be achieved within a given project and within the given timescale. Um, and making sure that we do pick the right team, the right expertise and the right delivery method. And really a BA can really, within the consultant space lease, we can really guide our commercial guys, if you like, in, in relation to what teams we put on the project, who needs to be there um, and that kind of resourcing side of things. But 
you know, a BA in an agile world is just part of the bigger picture, bigger team. Um, so it just making sure that we get all those details right. Um, the start of the project is absolutely key. Um, kind of firming down, nailing down the requirements and what we can actually achieve. Um, and additionally, also managing the client's requirements. That's that's absolutely essential as well. Um, just making sure that they understand what the technology can or cannot do, what the limitations are and what we can actually get out of it if we've been a bit more creative maybe. Um, so those are kind of the main focuses that we have and the main challenges at the very start of the project. Uh, in terms of kind of moving forward, um, I think what's really important to me is um, having a really close relationship with our technical team, having a really good um, solution or technical architect, um, which is at our I've also learned that this is one of the key roles um, on any technology project um, and really just working very closely with them, understanding, really, really making sure that the BA understands the technical terminology and um, the limitations and um, the potential of what we're trying to build um, and just nailing that requirement down. Okay. and. Um... Just so we're on the topic on the on technology type projects, like uh, is is there um, because I think uh, what you've described are a set of processes that we uh, at the business analysts at least uh, use for templates and processes that we use to to deliver our outputs towards that project. Could you talk about uh, what are the type of technology projects? Uh, like, are you able to give like is it a you know? uh application at that application level what what are those projects uh, that we're talking about here yeah um so i could use an example of what i'm working on currently um we are building um our own product um for i mentioned that for grant management and public money spending for the public sector and with this project we rely heavily on salesforce which is um, quite popular technology nowadays. I'm pretty sure everyone's familiar with it. Um, however, um, because we want to make it, one of our main goals is to make our product absolutely user-friendly. And by user-friendly, I mean user-driven, so very much based on the research. Um, this is not just about the UI, but actual user requirements, user needs, um, and we want to be driven by that. With out-of-the-box solutions, obviously there's always that limitation that it imposes on teams. Um, therefore, we do do a lot of customization um, in relation to the elements of Salesforce functionality. Um, and one of the jobs that I have at the moment is making sure that I fully understand and can explain to the client um, the limitations and also the wider kind of architectural picture of Salesforce, how, how it can be best implemented in the particular use case. Um, understanding and being able to translate um, the client requirements into the actual Salesforce requirements, if you like. So some of that um, will be kind of your out-of-the-box standard functionality and we can meet the requirement of the user or of the client using just standard Salesforce. 
others are purely custom um, just to make very specific uh, user requirements or make more UX driven. Um, so it's that sort of understanding between which tools within the particular technology product we have to use um, and making sure that it, the requirements translate into very um, well-defined user stories because there's always that confusion where we use an out-of-the-box solution that, you know, it's not always clear to people implementing this um, whether or not we should be using the kind of standard functionality, what exactly do we want to get out of it, um, and the sort of the purpose of um, using custom tools. Um, so when I'm having to split my requirements or put my requirements into tickets um, in an agile process, um, we always do almost a pre-refinement session um, to help people understand the purpose, the context, and what we're trying to achieve. Um, with a particular set of epics, for example, which is really important and have helped the team a lot, just kind of setting this expectation out and setting the context um, to make sure that, you know, anyone can contribute and can raise their hand and go, well, actually, I think we can do it in a better way or more efficiently or using um, another functionality. Um, so for my teams, it has proven to be, um, to be a great tool in order to achieve a common understanding we call it a feature kickoff so anytime picking up a new feature um, for implementation we always do those team-wide sessions to make sure everyone understands what we're doing why we're doing it and what we want to get out of it good thank you thank you Julia. so let's move on to lena if you can share your specific projects and and talk about the applications at that level and, and also the process and you know the world your day your your paint a picture of, of the world that you live in uh, as a ba well first of all every project is different right so you always need to go go into any project uh, with that uh, sort of mindset and also focus on as julia says what is the delivery that that you want to, that the team, the tech team is going to deliver because um, depending on that delivery, your role can also change. So if there's a, a scope change or the prerequisites change, you know, um, the BA role is not just uh, providing a predefined uh, set of deliverables that really needs to be tailored into, into every uh, specific uh, situation. So, um, that being said, I think that in general there are, you know, compliance heavy projects or initiatives differ a lot from the more, uh, you know, um, what can you say, innovative <laughs> type of uh, initiatives where you, when you work with compliance, it's extremely important that you understand not only uh, what is the policy or what is, you know, the, uh, the, the, um, the set of um, of uh, legislation that you that you need to implement, but also what's the intention behind it, and it's really important that you engage with the right people who understand also the intention, because just reading the word of it uh, might lead to either under engineering or over engineering uh, a solution. Uh, so so that is extremely important, and I think actually when you deal with compliance heavy projects, there is a bigger risk of over-engineering than under-engineering because you always, always want to be on the safe side. And it's difficult 
to um, to make the business take risks on compliance projects, which I totally understand. But it's just so important that you uh, deal with, if you work in the public sector, you might have access to the people who actually formulated a particular piece of legislation. So it's so important that you engage with, the, with those type of uh, people. Um, so, so that's for, so for compliance, right? If you talk about more uh, innovative um, uh, projects, then I think you always, and particularly, and this is when you work in an internal uh, IT or um, development uh, department or organization, you always have to you know, consider the do-nothing option, right? Um, and uh, that is, I think, the, that is the difference between the BA and the other and the tech team, right? Because if you give a job to a tech team, they will deliver, they will deliver with technology, obviously, because that's what they do. But as a BA, you need to ask yourself, is it really needed to develop more technology to solve this problem? Because maybe it really isn't, you know? Maybe we need to use the applications that we already have in our IT landscape in a better way. Maybe we haven't implemented something else in in the, in the right way, or um, maybe we need to change something um, there, right? Maybe we actually need to change our business processes. Uh, so, so I think uh, that's a really important role that the that the BA plays uh, in relation to uh, to a tech team. Yeah. So you were talking about the IoT specific projects. Could you uh, give us the the walkthrough of uh, start if a BA stepped into an IoT uh, Internet Internet of Things for those uh, who want to know about it? Uh, yeah. What is the what are the processes uh, like? Uh, your yeah, the the project has not started. Uh, you know the resources are in place. Uh, you are come on board as a BA. Um, so, what talk us through what uh, what's that journey like? Yeah, starting from nothing to a full live production IoT application. Yeah. So one of the um, one of the things you need to first uh, realize is how mature is the organization in terms of IoT, uh, because really an IoT device is like a user but it's just a piece of hardware that is a user right so if your user is a person an employee in your company then that person will already be registered in your hr system that person will have an access card to enter the building a login to a pc all of those things will be in place right if you have an organization that is very immature in terms of iot then that device does not have those things, right? Your organization needs to know that advice before it can even start reporting data into your products, right? So if you have a, an organization that is uh, mature in terms of IoT, there will always be, there will already be a framework for that or um, some kind of uh, platform processes, whatever, that at least uh, is a starting point for that. But if not, then you'll also have to take that into consideration. So I think that's where IoT differs uh, from other projects. Um, and, um, and then an IoT project, I guess, can start with two things. You can start with a piece of hardware. You know, we have this IoT device. We want to start using it. Okay, good. 
then how do we integrate with that device? How do we install it? Um, you know, but but that's only one side of it, right? The other side of it is what's the purpose of using this device? Because you could also start up an IoT initiative by saying, well, we need this type of data in order for us to deliver this product to our uh, customers or, or users or citizens or, or whoever it is, right? Um, and then the answer to that need could be an IoT device. So it depends on you know where you do you start with the end project that a product that you want to offer, or do you start with the uh, IoT device itself? And as far as I have seen, I think it often starts with the device. You know, you can get this device. Uh, we need to use it. Okay, good. What do you want to use it for is then your question, right? Um, because then there are. I mean, you have with IoT, there is a lot of, um, um, uh, you know, um, you need a lot of detailed knowledge and specialized knowledge about networks and about uh, setting up these devices, connecting to them, um, different kind of connectivity capabilities and, uh, and all of that. And there are lots of specialists in that area, very good specialists in that area. But where you need a BA is also to say, okay, well, which type of data do we need? How often do we need it? Which quality do we need it in? Is, you know, the uh, frequency of the data more important than the quality of it? Uh, you know, um, what's important here in relation to the, to the data? Because um, how it's connected doesn't tell you anything at all about the data that you want to transfer to or from that device. So, and, and when I think about IoT uh, app, uh, projects, uh, it, it's worth no, uh, for our audience to also know, it's not just a single application though, isn't it? Because uh, when you, if you just do a quick Google search on, on IoT application, it's not, I mean, you can have a series of applications talking to, talking to each other to make that overall end-to-end -end process happen. Um, you know, like for instance, if you're using event streaming, uh, using uh, I think uh, don't quote me, but there's an Amazon as Amazon-specific technologies like Kafka and uh, quite a few names are out there. But uh, it's not governed by a single um, Internet of Things application, right? You have a series of different uh, uh, technologies talking to each other to make that overall end-to-end -end process happening. Is is it? Uh, is that your experience, yeah. Lena, or is it...? And, and that's why you need to differentiate between the product, right, and between your IoT setup. Because, uh, mm -hmm. because an, an end product is not necessarily only comprising of IoT data. Probably you would also want to contextualize that data, maybe with the customer information or with some data that you have, you know, if, if, if you do event streaming, you might want to uh, consolidate those IoT events with manually created events by customer service or you know whoever is uh, is also providing data into those processes, right? And that's where you have a, a a product that is using IoT data, which is different from from managing your IoT devices, setting up your integrations, and and all of that, right? Um, so, so ideally, you don't want your end product to rely on just one type of IoT devices or one type of IoT technology, right? You want it to be able to 
to really use any kind of data that fits into your uh, into the purpose that you have with your product. And so, at what uh, in terms of the processes as a business analyst, uh, what what would that be? Is it related to a lot of the process that uh, Julia has talked about as well? Um, in the like uh, tools, templates, a business analyst would use to to make uh, the overall project project a success, like gap analysis or um, oh, you know process mapping absolutely, um, absolutely. Mm. all of the techniques it's it's the same it's just the, the okay. domain is a bit different right and you need to focus more if you talk about you know the, the the iot setup itself connecting with the devices you have some processes that you need to consider that you wouldn't otherwise uh, need to consider right there's also configuration management of the devices which is usually something that is already given out of some ITIL framework or whatever you have in your organization, right? So you need to, you have more processes that you need to make sure are covered, but essentially the techniques and uh, and everything, it's more or less the same. And um, I'm just zooming into this, but uh, you, uh, is it only the IoT type projects you were involved in in, in, the, in the last few years or were there other types of uh, technology projects? You Prim primarily uh, IoT related, yes, but then also, you know, how is that data then being used, <laughs> which is just mm. normal application development, really, you know, it, it, it's, okay. it's no different, it's just different data sources, basically. Different data uh, sources, okay. Yeah, and then, you know, on top of that comes also business intelligence and, you know, all of that usual stuff that comes along with any project, really. Okay, interesting. So you, uh, so I guess uh, uh, it, the devices are obviously different. Uh, the, you have to look at the input and the output, um, and I, I guess you'll have to do some kind of data mapping exercise uh, uh, to to identify what are the input systems and what are the output, the source and destination. Build some kind of a Excel sheet with uh, all the columns on you know point to point how the data is moving, right? Uh, yeah and build a picture from that angle um, and what what um, what umbrella terms I guess uh, would you have to learn um, while diving into the IOT type projects because uh, uh, I'm just looking at some of the messages uh, so someone's mentioned uh, microservices being used within the IOT uh, infrastructure um, I can think of ESB enterprise service bus uh, uh, architecture being used in uh, one of the many areas inside the IoT setup. You know. So, what what are so do you like? Uh, are you able to list down some of the key umbrella terms just for our audience to to dive dig deeper? Um, you know, when they start building their knowledge base around uh, these type of projects. Well, I mean, I think um, device management is uh, is an important uh, process area um, and the device provisioning um, uh, those type of things uh, but i mean microsoft services or service versus more like it's an architectural pattern right you can apply that to to basically anything and uh, and when you talk about how to integrate with these devices, yes, you need to do data mapping and all of that, but I don't see it being any different from any other integration that you do. I mean, I've defined lots of interfaces with external um, systems, you know, where, where, where it, it, it's a black box what that system actually does, but you agree on an interface uh, 
uh, with with that, right? And 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 to me, it's not really that different. Uh, but yeah. but you would be you. But you would just for our our uh, our audience uh, need. Uh, you would be able to uh, build some kind of. Uh, I mean, I guess you have to talk to a lot of subject matter experts to understand uh, the technical aspects of of. Uh, of this end-to-end process, right? To to create the as-is journey. I guess there's some kind of as-is journey that you have to get involved in as a business analyst to to build uh, where are we right now and where do we want to get to uh, as the next stage in the project. How what 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 are those? Uh, just if you had to list down, what are the process? What are those um, deliverables? Let's just say what are the output documents or processes as a business analyst you would have to do uh, yes. in an IoT setup, of course, uh, link it to the IoT project itself. But um, if, if I'm naming them, what, what would they be? Uh, you know? Well, they could be uh, interface uh, specifications, uh, they could be um, process, uh, process diagrams, process maps, uh, it could be uh, use cases, um, it could be uh, Information models, obviously, um, work products. Um, but um, and there, there are a lot of there. There are more stakeholders than usually, uh, probably, because you would be interacting also with a vendor of that device, right? And you would be interacting with um, experts on the on the hardware itself. You also need to consider. Uh, and, and and I haven't been working with this as a BA. We've had specialists for this, for defining requirements to the hardware, depending on the environment that you want to install your hardware in, right? Um, things like uh, the battery life, you know, does it need a power supply or, um, you know, things like that, right? But that's actually, we actually have specialists defining those types of requirements. So there are lots of, you know, areas of expertise here uh, that you need to uh, to engage uh, with um, to get the full picture. Okay. Um, and that's maybe and... what makes it more complex. Actually, it's not so much my deliveries, it's more the complexity of the full uh, landscape, I would say. Mm. So w w would you be looking at, uh, and we, had, we did a session in the last week around non, um, non-functional requirements so i'm just wondering like do you have to look at not just the obvious functional requirements of the overall architecture of your iot uh, project but also look at you know the downtime the the, the security the, the all these other non-functional aspects usability accessibility all those do you do you have to get involved a lot in in uh yeah uh well, a lot, uh, to some extent, yes. Uh, but again, this is also about bringing everyone together, like all these areas of expertise, make sure that, that they actually talk. And again, uh, when you talk about security, again, this is also about the maturity level of your organization, right? In terms of actually defining security requirements to IoT, uh, how mature is your organization? Um, so there are definitely security concerns around IoT, but again, that needs to be weighed out against how much are you willing to uh, pay for that device uh, 
and also uh, what about uh, again battery life if uh, we need to implement lots of uh, security features on the device how battery consuming is that and if it is very battery consuming do we even have a business case a lot of these non-functional requirements can kill a business case for an iot project if you're not yeah. careful right and uh, that's where you need to uh, to i mean you might not have that level of expertise yourself but you need at least to be able to facilitate that process and make sure that all of the considerations are done that you don't just have a security department that are putting up you know lots of very strict requirements and then you know you need to be able to process those requirements uh, you know have them weighed out against other concerns and so you know you need at least to be able to do that as a BA. And uh, I assume, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you are um, the the things that are no different to other uh, technology projects. I guess as a BA is is working in agile, uh, have its Scrum teams maybe, or do yeah. you, do you choose Scrum vs Kanban? Uh, which metro, which specific type of um, approach? Um, uh, well, I've I've worked with I've worked with the Scrum uh, framework. Uh, I think more or less only right, but I think uh, the DevOps um, uh, approach is also something that is uh, um, yeah. that is maybe coming in now as well as a, as another approach more than Kanban actually. Um, so yeah, Scrum, yes. Okay, interesting. So, so I guess for our audience, if, if they have to look at the relationship, I mean, some of the key things you can bring into a brand new IoT pro, uh, type project is, uh, you know, uh, doing the as is uh, journey mapping uh, activities, uh, functional non-functional requirement activities, um, uh, be expecting that there is a potential opportunity to work in a Scrum team where you, with the product owner or product manager and 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 devs and QA, that whole setup can happen even in, in IoT type projects uh, is what I'm getting at, right? Absolutely, absolutely, uh, yes. Uh, I, and I guess the different, the I guess the, the the key differentiator with IoT with others is the is the number of stakeholders that your interaction uh, will be basically. You'll you'll have a lot more interaction because there's so many devices and subject matter experts uh, related to or system owners as we call it. Uh, so that means you have to do a lot of more uh, requirements elicitation activities in this mm -hmm. process, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, great, Alvaro, if you can uh, come on. And uh, I think it's worth noting that, Alvaro, you're not a business analyst. You're coming from a different angle, sharing the, the, the project. Uh, but it's also good to maybe share your insight into or your how familiar are you with some of the things that the BAs uh, get involved in. Uh, yes. Oh, uh, actually, I've been coming from, you know, the, the technical expertise from programming and everything, but I've been a business analyst as well. And now I'm heading the operations. I have many people on my team doing BA as well. So I kind of have like the experience at the same time, but coming from different angles. Which is great because then you know as much as you can bid on their shoes then you can start blocking some of the main points just not to be very repetitive on the things that uh julia has said because i 100 percent agree i also work on consultancy um i think especially on the industry that i work at this moment which is financial services i think one of the most important aspects is that you need to speak the language 
you need to speak the language. That's very, very important, right? Uh, Lynn mentioned before about compliance and security, so you can go into PSD2 or MIFID2. There are a lot of regulations on this, on this aspect and on these topics. And it's very important that when you are getting these kind of like, you know, sessions around gathering requirements, you're creating the user stories, using agile methodologies, specifically in the financial services sector, it's very important that you understand what you're speaking about and that you can also bring like new aspects, right? Because many of the companies are still, you know, in a kind of way, like very old school, thinking not very out of the box. They want to customize a lot of things, but, you know, using technology, I think Julie, Julia mentioned us before as well. I think using platforms like Salesforce or many others, right, which are trying to bring end-to-end experiences. I think we as consultants as well, we need to make things very simple and using the out-of-the-box is, is very important. Sometimes, you know, you are in meetings uh, as a VA or as, I don't know, as a technical architect where they're asking you to do something very ad hoc, very, you know, customized at some point. And maybe with just little, you know, modification on the user story, on what you want to achieve, you can do it out of the box. And the difference might be, I don't know, a lot of money, but also it could be, you know, time to market. You might accomplish a user story in a week if you do it using the out of the box of the platform. And then if you customize that a lot, it might take months, you know, and at the end, basically it's based on agile and lean, you know, I think the best way is to have recurrent demos, you know, to, to hand over that kind of knowledge, the, the technology you're using behind to solve the problem to them, the sooner the better, because nobody knows what they want to do in the, in the next three months or four months, right? I think we are uh, living this outbreak as well. And nobody thought about this, this COVID-19 in, in February or January and plans had changed. So that's really justify why, you know, Agile is very important. And, and why the, the, the most you can be close to that business and the most you can you know rely on technology but using out of the box the better you will be able to be flexible to be versatile you know on what they want to to, to achieve so that for me one of the main lessons learned but the the second one that uh, i have a lot of scars on that so i was the the one making the a lot of mistakes on that is about change management so I think that's very important. We we try to tend or we tend to believe technology is going to solve us for, for everything, right? Specifically now on the artificial intelligence, you know, smart tools looking at behaviors and data and trying to, you know, to solve our life, which is great. I think automating, you know, it's, it's part of digital transformation. But we are humans are still there, you know, using and transforming this for our customers, for our partners, for our employees. And I think change uh, management, it's a very important piece of any of any project. You might have the best technology ever, right? And you can go into the Gartner and the Forester and look at the, you know, the Salesforce or the Microsoft or the Adobe or whatever. And they are great and they are cool. And, you know, probably, you know, you can do a great job there. If you don't change the teams that they are using those tools and, and that they need to understand how to use it, how to, to basically transform then the KPIs into how to do it through, you know, workflows or whatever the tool is. I think uh, you might have a Ferrari, but you don't know how to drive it. That's not going to work. <laughs> That's probably the, the, the main aspect. Um, the, the other piece that I think the three of us are commenting is, you know, the methodology. What is the best approach? I think many people 
are going into agile using you know scrum or programming or or kanban which i think makes sense is based on on you know the 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 lean startup actually and i think that makes sense in terms of business that's not to put it on the technical side uh, i think it's very important to set up you know uh, short term and quick wins i'm speaking about small mvps you know uh, the minimum valuable products in terms of three months four months no more than that to to really uh, you know be connected understand what is the problem divide the problem in different phases try to show that to their business let them play with the tool let them play you know and how that the market reacts to that problem and define some specific kpis and then measure them every single three weeks four weeks or whatever the time takes right once you're able to define some small kpis and you will be able to to react to the market to change as well the engine and i think that comes as well as as lee mentioned with the with the devops i think it's one of the most important things you know it's not just about the automation between the the business uh, you know defines our requirement or our user story but it's also about how the whole stakeholder how the whole teams are basically engaged and really understand what they're doing i'm, I'm also you know teaching in a business school and I've been teaching at the university, and um, but one of the main subjects that I do is internship. So I actually support the first kind of like professional um, uh, talents, you know, for many of the of the students. And I always tell them, you know, when you write a, a summary or an assignment or something like that, I don't I don't need to know what are the Java lines or the code or the things that you're doing there. It's very important you understand why you're doing that. So you have to explain to your father or mother or somebody in your family member, and they don't understand about IT. I think <laughs> it's very important that you put on their shoes and say, "Okay, what are you doing? Right? What is IoT? You tell an IoT, they're not gonna, they're not gonna get it. But if you explain the same way Ling was mentioning, and you explain the journey and what is that for, you know, that's basically what I believe on, on DevOps. I think people, even you know, programmers to business analysts to project managers to the whole team, really understand. You know why are they doing that and of course everyone has a responsibility and the success comes from them to really understand the end-to-end -end because at the end they are a team and they have to, to they have dependencies in all of them okay that's interesting um, and you, you you touched on some of the some of the things actually uh, around a lean startup um, uh, which is interesting and for our viewers uh, uh, the MVP that we keep referring, I put a message on the box. Uh, it stands for minimum viable product, uh, which is a key term used in the lean movement, uh, uh, which is a ta taking a step further from from what we are, at, at least as a business analyst, um, most, I think most BAs uh, tend to work a lot more on um, projects that are uh, not having that much of uncertainty, uh, which is the key thing which distinguishes lean startup projects from the other projects, right? So there's there's a lot of uncertainty in 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 some of these innovation type projects. IoT is a is a good example of a, of a, uh, of where you can apply lean startup approaches because there's a lot of uncertainty in in, in the way it's, it's uh, it works and there's just so many technologies and there's bits and bobs on how it works as well. Um, but one of the key things about minimum viable product is that uh, we are measuring uh, each and every uh, hypothesis, as they call it. We, everything is treated as a hypothesis, as an experiment. Um, uh, some of the some of the uh, lean startup uh, projects I was involved in, um, they 
because of the level of uncertainty in the requirements we have to do a lot of discovery with with the with the stakeholders we have to uh, it, it's not enough that they to, to, they give us this feature list uh, you know we want so and so to happen in our project uh, you know now go ahead and do it that's not enough uh, we actually have to go dig deeper and un understand the pain points of these stakeholders uh, why do you need those features and you know, go deeper now understand a little bit more about the life of these stakeholders at work you know what's the day-to-day -day life like uh, we have to go to that experimental level uh, when we build that uh, as a journey at least that's what uh, i did in, in these lean startup projects is uh, i I, it, I didn't just do what i would normally do which is you know build an as process map and identify the touch points in the systems and click 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 or whatever is needed um, I had to go deeper and say, okay, what are the problems that you are facing at each and every uh, touch point in your ASIS process? What are those problems? I need to understand that. Uh, and they start building, they tell us, they go deeper and say, oh, uh, you know, the lock-in doesn't work or there's a downtime issue or, you know, I can come up with, there's so many uh, problems that they start talking about. We need to get to that level uh, in, yeah. in lean startup tech projects, right? Hundred percent. I, I can I can break an experience that I have recently been working with. Uh, we have been working with a startup for a very big bank. So you can you can also see that many of the big banks are trying to build like their own white labels brand. You know, associated to that, basically just to launch a product and see if the product is going to be successful or not. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of uncertainty. So how how are my competitors doing? Uh, what is going to be the approach? Is it the right moment or not? So we just launched this on January. So we didn't know about COVID-19. And then we, of course, had to change a lot of things on the go. But the long story short is, you know, the main statement for them was, I need to launch an FX, you know, a foreign exchange program. So people can send money, you know, uh, especially the B2C, you know, the, uh, ourselves as customers, we want to send money from one country to another. That was the main statement. So you, you can understand that we're already three or four big players, you know, in the, in the markets. So we started that from the UK, you know, sending money to, to Spain. Uh, but then, you know, there was the ambition to keep growing in different countries. So the first thing is, okay, I want to do that, right? And, and what they tell you in the first meeting is, how can you do it? So look at the statement. The statement is so big that you need to start drilling down into different phases. So we said, okay, the first thing that you need to do is we need to do discovery. We need to understand what is you, your USDP, what is your unique values, right? That you want to, to be against your competitor. What, what are the things that will uh, make yourself different from, from the rest? And, and, and that was very clear. They wanted to be focused on, on the servicing part. You know, many, many banks, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, are, are using, you know, artificial intelligence and, and bots, you know, to servicing their customers. And they wanted to have more a human aspect, but of course, automating that. So for them, that was quite important, right? So we were, we just did a couple of discoveries on that and we proposed MVPs for different aspects. The first thing is you want to launch this, you need to have brand awareness. Nobody knows you, right? So we need to launch a couple of different campaigns for them to understand who are you, what are you serving, what are you trying to do and see, you know, if there is interest or not. So we didn't launch anything. We didn't encode anything first. We just went into the marketing team and then we launched a couple of campaigns, you know, through LinkedIn, social media, and uh, PRs and everything. Um, and actually it was like a waiting list. So are you interested in this? We were just launching a couple of videos, right? 
and, and, and books. And if you are interested, then we got a list. And if we get a list and our KPI could be like 100 people interested on that, then we go for it, but then we don't go for it, right? And we didn't launch any kind of code or project or anything. We didn't invest much more than the marketing. So once we launched that in, in a month or two, then we got some KPIs, we improved on the go as well, and then we got a big waiting list. And then when we decided to go into the discovery, to go into a, an MVP and started to roll out different phases. So the first thing was about, okay, we need to have um, an onboarding. So if you want to get onboard into, into my app, you know, because it had to be 100% digital, as everyone is trying to do at this moment, then we just created something very easy. You know, it was a, a, um, a web app, so we didn't invest on mobile apps yet, you know, on that first phase, because of course, as you can imagine, it's, it's more expensive, it takes more, more time. So we just went into a responsive design website where basically you were able to, to onboard and send, and send money aboard, uh, right? So it was quite important as well that you need to, to give some kind of free fees to do that to be different from your competitor and to engage, you know, into top of the funnel more people. So we did that in a couple of months. And then instead of opening that to everywhere, we just went into what it's called friends and family. That's a very good term in the, the agile methodology. So instead of going directly into the world, which sometimes look like quite scary, <laughs> we just tried to share between friends and family. So we decided, okay, these 200 people around friends and family and colleagues, we're gonna start using that and we learned through that ourselves. So we're able to mitigate and send some of the stuff to be ready for the market. The long story short is that at the end, we went to the market, it was quite successful, right? And after a year, we are almost finished in 2020. We are now in two countries. It's uh, UK and Belgium. We are launching Spain in, in January and they want to keep launching that in next year in, in the USA. The, the product has changed a lot. So from the first discussion till now, there's nothing, there's no similarities, you know, what we were expecting to, but we just learned on the go using that kind of, you know, methodologies and using agile and, and, you know, using lean. And just to give you an example of how have they changed is that, for example, now there is a referral program. So the, we know that the product is working well, that you can send money abroad. They want to keep growing in terms of new customers. So basically you can bring your own friend and then they give you like a, an Amazon voucher for that. And this is like different techniques in marketing to, to get uh, this done, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, uh, as you, as you started talking about a bit about this, uh, uh, this act, uh, this approach on how to get data, it's worth a, a, a key point over here about MVP is uh, it's measurable. Uh, the whole point about release, uh, we, we, uh, we are continuously uh, releasing a series of experiments, you can say. We're releasing it, but the more important thing about this MVP approach to building a product is actually um, gathering cu uh, customer data or data from the consumers of that product. That's the key uh, vital uh, point about uh, of, of uh, lean way of uh, working, which is for every single uh, output that you're producing uh, in your in your product, uh, you're getting some kind of data to validate whether that requirement actually is needed or not. That's why we talk about uncertainty in requirements because it's not like you put it in a backlog and uh, hoping it's all done. No, it's actually it's in small st um, work working pieces of code that that your your customers can engage with. A good example of this is landing pages. Uh, uh, you know, you can just have a 
a, a quick landing one page landing with a button on it asking someone your customer to click on it just to see is that really what uh, the is that requirement really what the stakeholder wanted or not we're measuring how many people are going to click that button uh, that decides whether you need a you know a green button or a blue button or or the design of the button all that data we're collecting from small pieces of of outputs we are producing that are part of the product that's so much different to the the at least the the other ba projects that i'm work I've worked I, I, on, right? I think i think you, julia mentioned that before uh, for me as a consultant my client is not the bank in this case the client is the the, the customer of the bank you know so that, that's what you need to listen you need to hear and you need to start doing this kind of things like a b testing it's kind of the of the, of the of the of the world you were describing and you keep learning you need to have uh, interactions and building building this engine is so important to do it you know from the beginning to create that foundation that everybody knows what they're doing and then we got the speed to do that you know agile typically it's kind of like mistaken by being faster i think that's a completely wrong wrong aspect but of course it, one of the benefits is that you will tackle things you know um you can anticipate to that. That's what it says. So you won't make the mistakes, and maybe that that can be called as accelerate your time to market. But I don't like to call agile with. Maybe Julia can add to um, working in in Scrum teams. Uh, just a quick view on on uh, what's that like as a BA. Um, I recommend it. Yeah. However, what I would say, it, it very much depends on the maturity of um, the agile processes and the organization. Um, so it's, I would probably recommend for any immature organizations that are wanting to go into agile to maybe get themselves an agile coach. Um, because Agile, again, same as with technology, is not the answer to everything. It's just a tool that we're using to make things better. Um, so definitely, you know, just setting up a Scrum team, having a board um, and doing sprints doesn't mean you're Agile. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of organisations really get wrong. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Agile is amazing, but it's not actually that simple and it has to be fit for purpose. And the way organizations do it, it has to be fit for the organization. Um, there are different ways of doing Agile, really. Um, so yeah, don't just have a board and a scrum um, and user stories and call yourself Agile. It, it doesn't work like that. It's much more complex. Great. On that note, I'll end this session. Thank you very much, Julia, uh, Lena, Alvaro, for joining us uh, this session. It's really useful. I've learned uh, quite a few things, and it's uh, given me some food for thought over here. So thank you very much. And now let's listen to the second segment of this podcast. And welcome to this session on the BA video series, LinkedIn webinar. Uh, we've got a guest, uh, Rishi Poptani, as our uh, panelist for this session. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you, Vijay, for this invitation and this platform. Um, as you've mentioned, my name is Rishi, uh, Rishi Poptani. I've been uh, an IT business analyst for uh, almost 10 years, and I have uh, a lot of experience working with European and US banks, eminent banks, 
mostly working in the risk and regulatory space uh, in so called reg tech uh, industries or indeed reg tech industry i've worked with uh, people from all backgrounds so uh, not only uh, culturally speaking but from a functional perspective developers uh, devops professionals qas uh, project managers and more recently product owners so uh, so yeah that's a little bit about me um, if there's anything in particular i think i think we'd be covering that anyway right yeah great thank you rishi so yeah so the topic of the day is uh, working with uh, technology projects uh, the all the the, the methodologies or the delivery cycle and uh, all around how we deliver uh, projects while working with uh, diverse teams and uh, how we worked collaborate together to deliver those using methodological approaches of doing things um yeah so i think we can kick start go straight into the into the topic itself into your projects rishi if you want to just uh, you want to go ahead with uh, talking give us like i mean i always ask our panelists to start off with uh, kind of like a story on the background where was the situ- the situation before you got involved in the that project and what were the key challenges that happened at that time and then uh, talk us through the those projects and uh, what was the what was the output uh, you know and how it was uh, and rather not just how it's delivered but more importantly how it was appreciated by the stakeholders or your customers you know yeah. of those projects yeah. okay so i think uh, with respect to the methodology uh it's been most prominent in one of my projects uh, in in recent times that was my mifid 2 implementation uh it was with a major european bank and the business background of the context was that uh this was about 3 years back the entire red tech space was like start just starting to find its feet as a separate uh functional piece altogether so uh, regulatory projects before that were seen as uh, you know what these guys just produce back end reports and there's not a lot of separate technology required and therefore by extension not a lot of specific expertise required you can just you know move in from any other project but 2017 or 18 sort of changed that because you had uh, again from a business perspective you had HKMA Hong Kong Monetary Authority you had MiFID 2 you had Monetary Authority of Singapore you have uh, you had ASIC in Australia Uh, and of course dot frank just keeps coming up with a new version quicker than windows every year so uh, all of this was like the perfect storm you had all these uh, regulations and the churn on these was so fast that uh, it it became important to focus on what methodology would be really uh, the best for for the implementation of these sort of projects uh, how should be changed the way we work on a daily basis to be able to deliver these projects better right so uh, in my experience that methodology and that way of working was mostly agile scrum and uh, by extension safe uh, when we were working with larger teams using the scrum uh, methodology and the agile philosophy um so yeah so these projects um they went from simple reporting projects to almost so called full stack projects where you needed a uh, an architecture a framework with which could work for any regulation 
and all you needed to do as a company or as an or as an IT arm of a, of a financial services firm was to specify what you needed for a particular regulation that was the sort of the, the birth of regtech you know uh, so from customized solutions for each regulation we went to uh, sort of building a framework how can we align our front end systems that the systems that capture trades how can we align the market data inputs in such a way that the data that we get is always uniform and we can use it then as per the requirement of that particular regulation just turn a few knobs here a few switches there and we're good to go so yeah uh, scrum was instrumental in that and and what what were the what were the challenges like when you're when you're dealing with um, scrum methodologies in, within within the projects that you worked on um from stakeholder engagement to uh the the delivery cycle of those uh, the end to end process uh, what what's that like yeah so i think uh, that's a great point stakeholders is always been a challenge with bas in general and that yeah. became an even more pronounced challenge with uh, agile scrum because uh, there's the question of socialization education right so what i what i mean is on the ground there are people who've been in this industry as business smes for like 20 years 25 years overnight if you ask them to be available every two weeks for a brainstorming session because your sprint is two weeks there is going to be some pushback right they're used to the old waterfall sort of projects where they say uh you know what i'll give you a week in this month a week next month and that's it that's i'm done i expect to see the the, the delivery in what four months time but with agile scrum it doesn't work like that so there was always the culture shift and they needed to be sort of brought in line by the senior management that if if we bought in you better buy in and you give the bas uh, the the technology teams the the time that they need so maybe not one big chunk but several small chunks so that was a challenge some people towed the line easily because they realized that this was the only way some of the more shall we say reserved people did <laughs> did not so there was always a challenge with their deliverables right because um, more defects came in where they were the smes because obviously if if your if your ingredients are rotten you can't expect a great biryani right so <laughs> so yeah so that was the first challenge and as far as uh, the timeline were concerned it was always going to be aggressive because um, the nature of the industry is such that you have hard deadlines these are government mandated projects which have uh, you know they just put out a circular saying that for example mifid 2 went live on the 3rd of january 2018 there was no negotiation you can't reach out to your target market or the marketing people or the pre sales and say you know what uh, we'll give you this feature now uh, change your marketing literature so that we can give you the rest later you can't do that so the delivery timelines were pretty much set in stone also so these were the sort of shifts that that we had to deal with and uh, everything followed from there backwards so you know that you have to deliver something in 6 months time you know what you have to deliver you start planning immediately prioritize the requirements and so on and so forth so and uh, could you name us some of the if you can you give some specifics to the technologies itself that was used in in the project just so for our users to understand what type of uh, yeah sure uh, so 
Firstly, for requirement management, uh, we use Jira and Confluence, both excellent tools. Um, the good thing about both Jira and Confluence is they're both from Atlassian, so there's a yeah. good synergy, a good, uh, shall we say, integration. So uh, Jira was used at up until that point. I used to look at Jira as a project management tool, but it turns out that uh, I mean that project completely converted me. So uh, to to be a to to a Jira fan. Uh, you can use jira to track requirements right from the time they come forth from the mouth of the stakeholder to the time when they're actually deployed in production and even after that so uh, there are the tools like jama you have you had doors a few years back uh, and of course you have the good old microsoft office to manage requirements but uh, jira is is really good it's a net based platform uh, confluence on the other hand is a good brother slash sister technology for for jira because it allows you to manage your knowledge really well you can write pages on pages of what you've understood or learned or surmised but if it's not readily accessible and more importantly if it's not traceable back to specific requirements it's going to be very difficult to use but confluence allows you to do just that you can think of sharepoint right but sharepoint is is more of a it, it, it's microsoft so it allows you to work with microsoft products better you make a file in word and upload it on sharepoint share the link give the access to the users etc confluence it's like you've got a web page you write whatever you want it's got uh, integration with visio with draw io everything that a ba or a designer or even a developer could want it's got so the the text formatting properties of confluence i i might be getting too much into detail here but i think that this is really important uh so for example you might want to annotate text you might want to uh, put code snippets on there confluence lets you do all of that so it was it was like the perfect companion to jira you could link confluence uh, you could put confluence links in jira and yeah. uh, there's a good version history so these were some of the tools that that we used for for requirement management and by extension project management okay and uh, in terms of um the 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 projects could you give us a little bit more on on um, the the actual projects that you you were working that the uh, so now when i'm talking about technology in this perspective is uh, uh, the outputs that you your uh, sure. overall uh, project had to deliver basically sure so um, the output was reports yeah but not the kind of reports that you would expect when you hear the word report not not like a pdf output that some human would read no these were uh, automated reports in xml of course human readable formats but mostly xml or uh, uh, fpml or versions of fpml built on top of fpml so for the uninitiated fpml is a financial product markup language it's it's an extension of xml tailored to the financial industry so in a sentence the output of the of the projects would be these reports in xml which would be consumed by downstream systems outside the body of your organization those systems would belong to regulatory bodies or they would report to regulatory bodies so real time trade reporting would flow from front office systems to the systems that would consume this front office data consume market data put it in a mix apply business logic prepare these mandated reports field by field xml uh, and send them over to these uh, 
third party or proprietary tools that would consume those reports and say yeah this is fine or no this is not fine right. so yeah that was that was the uh, those were the deliverables but uh, and uh, when when you produce like let's start from the beginning over there uh, yeah. like for example what are the what are those uh, stakeholders uh, first of all let's talk about who are the, the key stakeholders that you have to work with uh, when you're producing uh, those outputs and talk us from the start for like you're just entered the project okay. it hasn't began uh, uh, what what activities do you have to be involved in right from the beginning all the way up to you know when it's all out there uh, produced sure. okay so let's take a simple example uh, i think that would really illustrate the entire process so imagine there's a cash equities business again for the uninitiated it just means that you've got stocks which are traded on the spot settled in a couple of days so no no derivatives right S- simple cash equities you've got a business and they are obligated now to report their trades to a body like uh, the european commission right now you need a technological solution to be able to do that so you they have their front office systems where they book these trades they have middle office systems which enrich their trades and then back office systems which help them settle those trades but think of this as a back back office so another uh, sort of a, a part that is put, that's stuck on or uh, behind the back office okay. uh, once those trades are settled that is when they need to be legally reported to authorities this is all uh, regulation right after 2008 uh, the authorities realized that they needed to have a, a, a finger on the pulse of the market the volume and the value of the trades being made so every trade that goes through this process right ultimately has to end up in the hands of a regulator how does it happen our software uh, and regtech in general would pick these up from the back office put them in a digestible format so whether the trade was cash equities or uh, an interest rate derivative it would show up in a standard format right, such as xml or fpml and be fed to a software which was then uh, which was commissioned by these regulatory bodies to consume those reports and uh, sort of give the bank or the the sponsor of the project a thumbs up that you know what you had 50000 trades this week we've got 50000 or we've got 48000 whatever a, a bit of tolerance and we've got the data that we require for each and every one of those trades so the actual analysis of those trades and whether they were done in good faith and all that would be done later but the first part is getting those trades to those regulators in time the stakeholders as you might imagine would be people who are working with cash equities the business people right uh the people who work on the it systems that support their operations so people who support their front office systems people who support their back office systems we have to interface with them then you've got a tech stack only for reg tech after the back office right so converting those trades in from because each front office system would have their native format you can't get them to change their native format you have to convert it to one uniform format that uh that process right so there, there would be a full stack take a team for that just for that and all the bells and whistles that go with that so you've got database you've got devops you've got version version control everything right and after that 
you've got finally the stakeholders who are external to your organization the people who represent the software that is consuming those reports so you've got to interface with them but sometimes there'll be issues like oh you know what i sent you this trade your software said that it's wrong but the exactly same trade which i sent you yesterday was accepted so what's wrong with this then they'd go back and check because their software is not perfect either right software fails that's why we are required so mm. this was the complete gamut of stakeholders that that you need to deal with okay what and when you are going out there and analyzing the front office the back office everywhere all the touch points in the process uh, i assume you're getting involved over there what what are some like how do you begin how do you uh, identify the relevant information uh, because i guess you you have to be as part of the work you have to start talking to a lot of domain experts uh, yeah. or system owners of the front end and the back end and all those systems in the in the process right yeah. uh, what are the um uh, so like do you do you come do you start asking these questions of you know how how the system operates more from a uh, from a domain expert yourself or are you coming with a fresh slate and asking like someone who doesn't know anything about the overall process like which angle are you taking when you when you get into this you know what i've actually never thought about this up until this point uh i guess it's more uh, to do with the domain simply because um, i'd like to uh, go back to the point i made uh, when we were when we just started this discussion we said that uh, we're not going to treat every regulation separately but sort of try to build a a platform that deals with all the regulations so uh domain is really important right domain is the language of the business so yeah. we need to be able to speak that because uh, if if i if i look at your question you said how do you begin interacting with stakeholders or how do you uh, w- what is the start point the start point is using terms like cash equity properly right? they say they might one person might say spot you don't yeah. know so so things like that you you need to speak that's a very trivial example of course there's much more to it but the idea is that you've got to speak their language and you've got to then understand what they want so start with the end in mind they know that they have a particular volume and they know that they they can afford a little bit of uh, maybe a 0.5% tolerance uh, difference in, in in what trades are actually reported at the end of the day but not any more so you start with that objective and everything follows from there uh, even non functional requirements make their way into the picture once you have these requirements in place so uh, and then you also have the the um the question of how to get these requirements out so in some cases if there's just a couple of stakeholders you would go with the interview technique get some time from them right but in especially for for mifid 2 where you're dealing with five six major asset classes you you can you have to use a combination of techniques sometimes to interface with these stakeholders so you do use questionnaires for the questions that are common to all stake uh, all all asset classes you send them out and uh, that is like uh, you getting the requirements from all of those the common requirements in one go instead of spending time with each of them asking them the same questions and the non common questions can be treated separately and uh, workshops were a third technique that we that we used 
to onboard completely new products or new asset classes because those were the trickiest ones where you would have a lot of contradiction one person would say something and you'd be surprised how many times the business guys would say you know what i didn't know it worked like that so then in that scenario interviews become less effective workshops are great because uh, you're getting the elicitation of the requirements as well as validating requirements at the same time and when you run these uh, workshops uh, do you have any uh, structure uh, towards how you're doing those workshops to gather the specific requirements uh, i i mean uh, for our yeah. viewers um, there are uh, quite a few linkedin learning uh, courses around running workshops um, i myself uh, in previous projects uh, i use concepts like uh, event storming for example as a, as one of the methods to get people onto the board and each stakeholder would put in uh, their own what they think are relevant in the overall process and then we start stitching the knots to identify the overall enjoyment but that's just one of many many ways of doing things yeah yeah but, but, but uh, you know what you hit the nail on the head that is actually pretty much the basic rule of a workshop you uh, only as as a ba or you work in teams that's how we used to do because one person would focus on keeping the discussion on track the other person would take notes uh, it might seem like uh, a waste of a man uh, you know like a person but uh, it, when i try to do this alone i lost track of either the discussion at times or i forgot to take down important points so we, we said you know what let's just split this up and it worked wonders so that's that's one tip uh, trick whatever you call it we used to work in teams second as you said brainstorming that that's awesome because you as a ba who's facilitating a workshop session you want to be invisible you want to be there in the background telling people that you know what this is not going where we wanted to go but as soon as that's done the discussions back on track you take a back seat let them do the talking yeah. uh, that's a that's a typical novice mistake i've seen uh bas fresh into the profession fresh out of college you can understand they're really enthusiastic they want to do a lot of talking they want to make a name for themselves but they with time they realize that the only way to make a name for yourself as a ba is to let others do the talking and yeah. brainstorming is perfect for that so do not uh contradict anything that they say let them contradict each other that's the magic right uh take down everything in as much detail however redundant it may be some point, some people repeat points over the course of a of a, of a workshop right? several days there was another concept called a straw man model so based on the initial discussions of uh, of a brainstorming or sorry a, a workshop we'd sort of make up our understanding very early uh, the the two member team we'd call it a straw, straw man model uh, i don't know the origin of the term to be honest but i'd like to think that it's straw man because it's very temporary right it would change it is almost guaranteed to change hence the word straw i guess uh, and with each session of the workshop that passes by uh we'd update our understanding and this is again tying back to confluence so give make sure that the participants for the workshop have access to confluence again it's it's more of a suggestion or recommendation for them to go and check because most most won't they're like you know what we're already doing more than enough by appearing here gracing you with our presence you can't expect us to read conference documents <laughs> so yeah. yeah that that was uh, uh these were some of the things that we we used 
and of course uh, a few other things that help uh, are basic hygiene factors like um, setting an agenda following it yeah so letting them know what is going to be discussed because people often drop out sometimes because they feel they have nothing to contribute which is good because you don't want people wasting their time because when they are actually required they, they won't be as cooperative they'd be like you called me for something and i wasn't required for right so that's one secondly mm, making sure that the, the the discussion is timed so that everyone knows there's a start and an end and um, unlike the scrum meeting make sure they are all seated comfortably there is tea and coffee <laughs> a small thing but it really helps because I, i i don't like people leaving the room for tea and coffee uh that sort of breaks the whole uh you know the 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 shall we say the camaraderie the spirit that people are discussing uh, a topic with so much intensity and then one of them says you know what i need to get a coffee and then the spell is broken so you don't want that so some some stupid stuff here but i i find that it helps me and um talk us through um some of the more challenging types of stakeholders by their job title or, or role in the in these finance sectors what what type of challenging stakeholders do we would uh, be normally have to uh, uh face mm-hmm. in these types of uh, uh, projects and how would you handle that basically okay so with uh, regtech it tends to be the operations guys who are the most challenging and i guess that is understandable because they somewhere they feel that their uh, usefulness their value is going to be diminished by uh, the automation of the processes that they currently define that they currently oversee that they currently uh, own and therefore take pride in so i've had operations guys uh, really aggressive opposing almost everything because they see the entire exercise as futile so uh i mean futile uh is not the right word they also know that it's not futile of course but uh they know that it it challenges their value to the organization um and they some of them look at this as is this my last contribution to this project because once the knowledge that i've given you is gone i don't know where i stand so these stakeholders are often the toughest people to to deal with and uh to be really honest there's no there's no silver bullet to deal with uh, with such stakeholders all you can do is constantly uh, sort of remind them how important they are to the process so when anyone else puts up a point about the finer uh, operate finer points of of um, of how a process for example how a trade is booked or how exceptions can be managed and how this would make their way to the to the regulatory report always ask them for their opinion those specific people who feel most threatened that's when they feel really valued and when the person who you think is is going to make you redundant actually is asking for your opinion again and again that sort of lessens their hostility so that's a trick that i used uh, to to quite a good uh, uh, to quite good effect yeah mm. and uh, uh, a few minutes ago you talked about uh, waterfall vs agile um and and uh, i guess uh, there's a lot of more waterfall activities but in the specific projects you are working on your you i guess you are uh trying to push for more agile way of working and and the scrum teams that you mentioned so these are quite, i think most uh, many bees that are uh, viewers on this are quite familiar with working in scrum teams um uh, which is a quite quite a common uh, practice i guess in uh, in technology projects um but when when we talk about again 
for example, documentation. That's a good example over there. The, uh, there is no single um, person who's uh, who completely agree on the level of what is considered the acceptable level of documentation. In uh, and I bring this point because you talk about these uh, the conference and Jira. I mean, I'm very, very familiar with conference Jira. We used, I use that a lot in, in the projects that I am working on. Uh, lately, one of the, the typical issues that um, stakeholders have brought up is, you know, what level of uh, documentation is acceptable in, in, uh, in agile uh, scrum uh, working methodologies. Um, for example, uh, some of the stakeholders in past projects have complained that, you know, We've got um, there's just uh, we've got too many. We are as a, as it is uh, bombarded with or overloaded with too many uh, documents as it is, uh, regardless of whether it's conference or whether it's a collaborative tool or not. We've just got so many uh, documents out there, um, and yeah, and as soon as a, a project gets initiated, uh, you know, there's a kind of a spin-off of the same materials, but with a different spin. Whether whether it's a PowerPoint slide or or it's a, or a Google Sheet, you know, depending yeah. on what technique yeah. it is, yeah. the, the content has just been enriched or maybe just you know ex elaborated yeah. a bit with some visual aids and things like that. Yeah. And uh, there is this, you know, I guess it comes down to you know uh, in Agile we talk about you know working. Um, um, again, I can't remember the specific uh, manifestos, but uh, something around working processes over working software, working software over documentation. Working, working over documentation. There you go. Working yeah. software over over documentation. Yeah. But it doesn't say that you are stripping out stripping out of documentation completely. You still need yeah. a certain level of documentation, which is required in the form of backlog. Which it might be a set of. Um, statements or or business functional and non-functional requirements that goes into the backlog everything can be uh, actually managed on on yeah. conflicts plus it's add-ons jira uh, there are loads of other add-ons additional to jira as well that yes, works together but yeah what how would you for our viewers how would you explain this point on uh, you, know, you know when you're introducing tools like uh, confluence jira or sharepoint or whatever tool it is yeah. uh, how much is enough uh, level of documentation uh, using these tools? Uh, that that is a such a difficult question to answer on so many levels. Firstly, when you talk about agile philosophy or agile manifesto, uh, it clearly states that we are not HQ. When I say we, I mean. I'm using the, the the founders of Agile as we. Right? They said that we're not skewing documentation. We're just saying that working software takes precedence over documentation, which by no means implies that you should stop documentation. Right? Uh, so that's a common misconception. And uh, it's something that uh, people realize as they work with Scrum. That you can't, you can't say that I'm not going to document something because Scrum says. Scrum doesn't say don't document. Scrum just says that don't document at the cost of working software. But people argue that if you if you if you document well, that is actually helping your cause to develop good, workable, maintainable software. So then yeah, the debate's pretty much settled, right? Now, but, uh, so the second point about this is uh, when you say level, not you, anyone would talk about uh, level of documentation. 
how do you even quantify something like this so you obviously we are not in that age where we have print out stacked up in a records room and we say we have these number of files for our project how many files do you have that's just <laughs> it's not relevant right so yeah a simple the simple answer that i can give is if you think that by putting this down you at least you can benefit because you don't have a great memory document it whatever it yes. is so uh the one distinction that i would make is use confluence for knowledge management right so things like things that are most static in nature right and use jira to write user stories functional requirements right yeah. that that have that are far more alive i wouldn't say confluence is dead right but what i'm trying to say is let, let's take an example uh from the bfsi industry if i need to define how a software or how a particular trade is going to be represented in xml the right place to do that is probably a user story because you're going to put acceptance criteria and the like in jira right but what if someone doesn't know what a trade looks like at all or what if someone doesn't know what xml looks like at all or they want to this is the first time they're looking they're working with fpml which is you know as we said built on top of xml those are the kind of things that you put in confluence you might say you know what everyone on this project knows what what uh, fpml is but can you guarantee that you're going to be here forever no right other people are going to join and again going back to the main point it's a simple thing uh, it's been debated to death but it's really very simple if you think that by documenting it you can refer to it 6 months down the line because you don't have the memory of an elephant do it by all means we are not wasting paper right <laughs> so yeah. that argument is also gone yeah okay yeah so there is there is definitely value when you start documenting it on on whatever tool you're using um because uh, the people or the resources that are part of the project might not be there uh, in a few months down the line you might even include brand new project people into the project but you're benefiting respect to building a knowledge base uh for for people not just in the project but uh, newcomers into the project but also i guess it's on top of that i would add that it's a communication tool for stakeholders outside the project who are who are who just want to understand the high level information of what's going on i guess they could use this as a status update uh, you know to to get some more details around okay that, that's that's great to to look at it in that angle what i've been working on lately a lot on is something a step Uh, ahead of uh, of uh, agile scrum way of doing and uh, this is called the lean agile way of uh, working where there's a very very tightening uh, focus on looking at really the the value valuable activities and tasks that that you can measure uh, when you're uh, when you're getting involved in it so uh, we use terms like minimum viable product uh, which is referring to you know only produce the bare minimum uh, software output or or whatever output at the end of a sprint that you can actually measure it from the cons- from your stakeholders or your customers and and use the feedback you get into the loop get those feedbacks and add it into the ch- next steps in the next sprints and that's how we decide what our f- upcoming sprints are going to look like basically um i don't know how much uh, do they use that in in the in the finance sector or yeah oh if if that's a question uh that's i think question, yeah. uh, 
yeah i think uh, as teams grow there's always the problem of scalability because people realize that uh, uh, i mean scrum itself mandates it doesn't mandate it, it recommends that you should not have more than uh, 9 to 10 people to a scrum team right and when you're talking about the smallest business unit the smallest uh, technology team that that you can speak of uh, in the finance uh, domain that can stretch to uh, 50 60 people right so it's it's very different from the product development space so to quote an example right uh, jeff bezos says that you should your team should be as many uh, there should be only as many people in a team as can be fed by two pizzas so that cannot apply to to finance uh, as a as an industry uh, when i'm talking about industry i'm talking about the it industry that, that deals with finance right? because you've always got to work with operations guys and uh, the software development guys the guys who are working uh, on a project model not not uh, operations right so with such large teams 50 to 60 you've got to have other uh, frameworks other methodologies that uh, that suit bigger teams better so lean agile is something that i've heard i've not had the chance to work with but safe is is by definition scaled agile framework right so yeah. you've yeah. got you've got uh, how do scrum teams work together and you have instead of a, a daily scrum i mean you also have that at the local scrum level but you have a scrum of scrum then you have the concept of release train engineers uh, because they realize safe realizes that if you've got a team of 50 people all of them are not going to be working closely with writing software they are going to be working with how to release this software how it really how it relates to what we've already released and and how we're going to deploy it and stuff like that so you've got release train yeah. engineers doing that work so yeah there are uh, beyond 10 people you need different frameworks whether it's uh, lean or safe or whatever else is coming up yeah okay so there is room to i guess there is room to apply uh, different types of frameworks yeah. within the within the framework if uh, now i could easily go down the depends route and give you a host of other factors that you you would require so let's assume certain things let's assume that you have been working as a business analyst at least in uh, other domains i'm also going to assume that you have uh, some level of formal education right so obviously you're a graduate or post graduate and on top of that you've you've got the basic ba skills for elicitation and specification that are really essential it's a bread and butter so diagramming and stuff like that i'm going to assume that if you assume all of that domain knowledge is not as a rule it's not very difficult or very painful to pick up in in my experience uh especially capital markets or investment banking uh it's it's pretty vast so if you're working in in one of these projects it is likely to be pretty localized to a part of investment banking and while i i would hesitate to attach a, an exact time frame i would say that once you've worked on one of these projects learning other projects or uh, sorry learning other sub domains would be quicker so it's going your growth is going to be the growth in your knowledge is going to be incremental it's not linear as a ba i guess this i would like to look at this from a cultural context so having worked in uh, at least two parts of the world so where i am currently and uh, back home in india i would say that uh, being, there there are cultural differences in the sense that in india by the age of 40 or 45 
you are expected to be in a particular path and not deviate a lot from it so if you were to apply for a ba there would be eyebrows raised definitely and you would have a slight disadvantage i'm being honest here like sorry if the answer is unpleasant but you would have a slight disadvantage uh, because there would be people with with uh, who are fresh out of college who are moldable right so and and the main thing of a ba about a ba is that the person needs to be flexible adaptable in the way they work with the people they work and in my limited experience of life that gets tougher when you reach 40 45 so that's the only way i can look at it i'm sorry i'm being so <laughs> non committal but yeah that's the way it is even if you don't have the chance to actually manually test something you should uh, as a ba to understand the process try to simulate what are trying to build so let me give you an example you've got a software that churns out reports in xml these reports need to be accepted by another software so why wait for your software to be ready just make up an xml report by hand you can do that in notepad right and feed it to the beta version of the software that's going to read it so just one example so broadly this is specific broadly speaking bas are crucial during the testing phase they are the go to people every defect that you get during a testing phase has to be routed through a ba and i'm not saying this because i believe that i this is babock best practice the reason why the ba needs to look at each and every defect is they need to understand where in the software development life cycle was this defect introduced first of all whether it is a defect right? so if it's not a defect then why has it been why has it been raised as a defect was the requirement misunderstood was it not clear enough does the requirement need to change if it if uh, you look at the output of a defect report and say you know what i might have made a mistake in specification of the requirements this is actually not a defect we wanted this so you can have that situation where a defect actually causes a requirement break and you have to revise your requirement there is a cr and all that right that's important secondly you as the ba would be the traffic controller for defects during the uat phases right you would be primarily primarily responsible for making sure that defects are routed to bas other bas I mean working with you handled by yourself uh, is it a defect that's that's been introduced in development right so it it needs to be routed to the development team sometimes you have defects which are just environment related so then you have to make sure that people who deployed it get to know of it and and they can see it so ba is pretty much at the i would say he's in, he or she is the nerve center during the testing phase very important <laughs> my wife tells me that uh, i am i nitpick a lot so i'm very detail oriented and um, you know i i make sometimes she she's trying to make a point and she makes a grammatical mistake and instead of listening to what she's saying i point out errors in how she said it so you might be wondering I'm, why i'm i'm talking about this it's because that's the area of of uh, business analysis that i really relate to it's why i became a business analyst i love detail so uh going through the minute details of a process going through uh, the possibilities when you're writing a uh, acceptance criteria right things that uh, the stakeholder who's giving you the requirement may not have thought of right and ruling them out and the re- giving making sure that the reason for ruling them out is documented right so all of these things so basically in a word um, looking at the the smaller picture 
because there are people to look at the bigger picture that's the product owner's job you don't, you don't have to worry about that so looking at the smaller picture figuring out the details uh, because no one else will do that if you won't do that as a ba trust me no one else in the project will do that and your project is likely to fail so uh, that's the part i find most enjoyable uh, the rule says for example uh, that uh, the price must be uh, correct to two decimal places when it's reported right so uh, you look at can questions like uh, if if it's a if it's a data related requirement there is a set of simple questions that apply to almost every data point first of all uh, so you're saying two data point uh, two two decimal points uh, would that be rounded up or rounded down you know things like that can it be negative can the price be negative reported from the point of view of uh, the buyer for example or the seller sorry the seller uh, can the price be zero if it is zero what would you like 0.00 or just zero can the price be null these are some of the questions that you can immediately think of of course in your head you can eliminate some of the questions based on the answers you might have got for other questions uh, so you obviously don't keep don't, don't ask for the same data point uh, the same questions obviously that is irritating to a stakeholder doesn't do you any favors but yeah for the type of requirement in this case let's say a data requirement nullability cardinality relationship to other data attributes these these are some of the questions that uh, you can think of and always use for data requirements i would i normally start off by you know looking at the project charter or if they have a project objectives right or what's the end goal that this project is supposed to meet and then kind of like reverse engineer to you know what is the first thing you'd want to see uh you'd want your customer or your end user to see as a as a, this thing as the output and and take it from step by step how do you do uh, rishi yeah i agree completely so there are a couple of things that you that every ba needs to focus on so as as vijay said customer focus has to be number one in your mind what you want to achieve right that's number one you should never take your eyes off that uh second from a skill perspective uh, or, or an abilities perspective your communication skills uh something that you should always keep working on because you can you can never be perfect you can always be better so uh think about your emails think about your your written communication on confluence try to minimize your errors amb- ambiguities yeah. so these two i would say the two c's uh customer focus and and communication yeah. uh, thank you very much rishi for joining the session have a good day